During this past week, for two and a half days, we hosted at Spirit Rock uh, a West Coast Insight Meditation Teachers Meeting. There were about 20 teachers uh, who came together. And for the most part, we talked about our own practice um, and our own spiritual life and Part of it was about the role of being a teacher, but much more of it was really about the practice that we do within ourselves. Some of the teachers, together with myself, shared the day uh, teaching on Saturday for those of you who came. And one of the longest discussions during the uh, time that we spent together was started with a question that uh, was raised asking us to reflect aloud on what had made changes in us in the course of our spiritual life. Um, What actually made a difference? Particular experiences that we had or certain kinds of practices or or what else did it? Um, And in some way, reflecting on what changes affected us, then we could look at what might be useful ways to teach other people. Um, Underlying this was the assumption, which was also raised as a question, um, have you changed? (laughs) Is anything improved over these years? Um, And part of the question that's quite traditional is, did it happen suddenly in a moment or a day or an evening, uh, some circumstance, or was it gradual? The understanding of spiritual opening and spiritual change has... Uh, an ancient debate that's never been solved by all the various sages that have engaged in it about whether change takes place suddenly or gradually. There are sudden schools and gradual schools, and they've fought for millennia. For the sudden school, the idea is that we, as human beings, need to find a vehicle or a way to break out of our ordinary vision of consciousness and to see the world in a whole new way, to step out of this small sense of self and our busyness, of the the dream that we live in, and touch that which is timeless, which is eternal. And for some people that will happen spontaneously in near-death experience, or by grace, just walking in the mountains in the Sierras, all of a sudden something, some vision will open up. Or some awakening in meditation may happen for some people. There was a study that was done of mystical experiences among average American citizens that found that the majority of American people had at some point in their life had some kind of mystical experience. And the majority of those didn't want it to happen again. (laughs) It's true because there was no context or way to understand it when you think of what might change you. There's a great Indian sage, Ramana Maharshi, um, who was curious about death. And so as a teenager at 17 years old, he thought and he thought and he thought about it and he said, well, let me try it. And he lay down one day and tried to imagine what it was like to die and in some very direct way really let himself die and got up from that experience Um, realizing death wasn't at all what he thought it was, touching something eternal, and became one of the uh, greatest teachers um, of the 
500 or 800 million people in, in India of this century, one of the most revered sages and saints, simply from that facing of his own death. Now, even in the sudden schools, they acknowledge that there is some need for gradual training or awakening or practice of awareness or attention, something to help us be here. But they don't see that as the cause of enlightenment or awakening because to be enlightened or awakened is to resume our true nature, to see what we are always and always have been. So that's not caused by anything. In the sudden schools, awakening or enlightenment is seen as an accident, an act of grace. And all the meditation practice then one, that one does then simply makes us a bit more accident-prone. Right? So that maybe an accident will happen. Then there's the gradual schools. And the Buddha spoke about both directions in his teaching. He said at one point, just as the great oceans do not descend precipitously, but rather descend slowly, layer by layer, to their greatest depths, so too in a life well lived, through kindness, through letting go, through wakefulness and presence, through the cultivation of compassion, through clear seeing, gradually our heart and our mind open, and we become transformed day by day, moment by moment, till we live in a new and free way. Now, in, in speaking this evening, starting with the teachers' meeting, I can't really share with you what the other people said there, um, but I would like to reflect on my own journey speak a bit more personally. The last few weeks talked about right livelihood and motivation and spiritual practice and so forth. Tonight I'd like to speak more personally. And as I tell this story, it's not so much that it's the way you'll hear. It's not the way for you at all. But sometimes a story of someone else's way helps us to hear or sense what is our own way in our own life. Basically, in my own spiritual life, I have found myself working my way down the chakras. You know, in normal spiritual teachings, one thinks of evolving and working their way up the spiritual centers of the body. But it hasn't worked that way for me. The first many years of my spiritual practice, the first ten years or more, were done really with my mind. First study of Asian languages and Buddhism and various traditions, and then very deep meditation, visions, um, extraordinary experiences of insight and understanding in the monasteries. But much of it done through my mind. And then after some time, after ten years, especially after returning, as I'll talk about later, from the first period of training in Asia, I discovered that though I knew a lot and had seen a lot, um, that when I began to relate in human and emotional ways, that I was still um, emotionally retarded, I guess is the best way I could express it. Uh, that all of that understanding, I could love a thousand people in my meditations, but when it came to one person nearby, it was a whole different game. Um, and so I discovered that there was this necessity to really work with my heart and work with what it meant to love 
and to be present for another person, compassion. And to reclaim feelings that were buried, all kinds, painful feelings, grief, loss, and so forth. So for 10 years I really worked through therapy, through various ways of working in my meditation, um, more with the work of the heart. Then I began to realize that I could feel again and I could see, but I'd neglected some other part of my being, um, which was my body in some fashion. And I've had basically good health and certain strength, so I like to climb mountains. Um, used to do a lot of mountain climbing, and I like, um, oh, I would, you know, I could be a monk and walk barefoot ten miles in the morning to get my food and sit for all night long, you know, and not move in the forest and do all these things. But mostly I used my body, as an athlete would. Um, And I began to recognize that to live spiritual life means to embody it, to live it from uh, how we move and how we eat and how we uh, touch the things in our life and act. And so again, it was kind of dropping down to a deeper level of my experience, seeking all the while a kind of authenticity of living what I knew to be true. A poem from Ma Lala, uh, or Didi Lala. She's a great Kashmiri uh, saint or sage in the five or six hundred years ago in the mountains of India. She says, The soul, like the moon, is new and always new again. I've seen the ocean continuously recreating. Since I scoured my mind and body, I too am new each new moment. My teacher told me one thing, live in your soul. When that was so, I began to go naked and dance. <laughs> and she's, this book is entitled Naked Song. She ran around and danced in the streets out of delight and ecstasy. A certain authenticity that lets us dance our dance of this life in all the aspects of our being. At least that's what I find myself seeking. So then I began to try to answer this question for the teachers group of what had made changes in my life. And I, in reflecting, a series of things came to me. Um, prior to going off to monasteries in Asia, I had read and studied in Buddhism. But one of the greatest changes that came occurred after I arrived when I met the teacher with whom I studied, Ajahn Chah. I actually was introduced to him because I heard about a Western monk in the province where I lived um, who was living in a Cambodian temple. I thought, oh, this is interesting. That's what I want to do. Let me go find him. So I walked 2,000 steps up to this ruined Cambodian temple on the top of a mountain in the Mekong River Valley. And there I found this American who'd been in robes for about a year and a half. He'd also been in Peace Corps before me in Borneo. And he was sitting on the stoop of this little um, hut, a tin-roofed wooden hut. Um, When I came up, there was a Thai monk together with him. They were living there. And he was covered with bees. There were bees on his robe and on his hands and so forth. And I bowed and paid my respects. And we started to talk. And I noticed that he just sat there and the bees crawled around him. And I thought, this is very strange. (laughs) Um... And finally I asked, I said, um, what's with the bees? You know? 
and he said, well, I moved into this hut. I lived for this last rains retreat in this extraordinary forest monastery with this teacher. Um, and one of the things I learned was that to be a monk, you have to live in harmony with things around you. So I came back up here and I lived in this, came in this hut and I started to live here and there was a beehive that was here. Was, no one was living in the hut, so the bees decided to live here. And at first I was freaked out and upset by them and thought they'd sting me. But I tried meditating, and as I meditated, they started to crawl on me, and I noticed they didn't sting. They just wanted the salt from my sweat. And I thought, well, I'm not using that salt, right? (laughs) So I thought, well, let's try coexistence here. And then that was it, and we went on to something else in the conversation. And I realized this was a very unusual man. It was Ajahn Sumedho, who's now the abbot of this monastery in England, and a very close friend. And he said, well, I met somebody who's really unusual, this teacher in the forest. And he described his teacher. He said, the only thing that was um, difficult is that usually as a Western monk, you're treated well, as sort of special that you ordain and so forth. He said, he didn't treat me special at all. In fact, quite the contrary. He made it rather difficult. But uh, I found him to be a remarkable teacher. So I went in search of this man, Ajahn Chah. And I arrived there and bowed and... He looked at me, he just kind of peered at me for a while. And eh, what are you doing here? He said, what are you here for? And he really meant it. You know, when somebody asks you, what are you doing here? What have you come for? Tonight, what are you here for? And they really look at you and ask, mean it. Well, wait a second, what, what am I here for? Um, there was this tremendous sense of presence about him and questioning. And with that presence was a wonderful heart, a great sense of warmth and humor. There was a kind of spaciousness around him where you felt this person who had no need to control things. Things could be as they were. And who wasn't afraid of things, simply told the truth as it was for him very directly with a lot of humor and a great deal of joy. It was Being with him was being with a person who rested in their Buddha nature in their own true nature. He was just himself, and he was really at peace with himself. And you could feel it from just the, the energy of his presence. I could feel it. There was a sense, as I got to know him, of being with a, a person who was rooted like some great tree in the earth. And one time near the end of his life, somebody asked him if he was enlightened, and he said, Do I know? He said, I'm just like a tree. And um, there's fruit and birds come and nest in the tree and flowers seem to blossom and the tree just is its own nature. And that's the sense that I had of him. He just was there. Um, And somehow to meet such a person, I've been with many wonderful teachers since then, but the first time to be with someone like that affected me really deeply. his own freedom and compassion and groundedness, I knew was something that I was seeking. And to see that someone could realize that was extraordinary. In Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, the the woman who compiled this, and then uh, Suzuki Roshi's student, uh, who then shortly after died of cancer, she wrote about him, she said, A master like Suzuki Roshi is a person who has attained that perfect freedom which is the potential for each of us as human beings. They exist freely in the fullness of their being, 
The flow of their consciousness is not the fixed repetitive patterns of our usual self-centered nature, but arises spontaneously and naturally from the circumstances of the present. The results of this in terms of the quality of their life are extraordinary. Buoyancy, vigor, straightforwardness, joyousness, humility, serenity, uncanny perspicacity, and unfathomable compassion. Their whole being testifies to what it means to live in the reality of the present. Without anything said or done, just the impact of meeting a person so present can be enough to change another's whole way of life. Wonderful tribute to her teacher. And we've all had that experience, or most of us have, of meeting someone or encountering some being that gives us a sense of our own true nature. What we seek, what we long for. Then the second thing, when I reflected back in my own spiritual practice that that was really significant, was hearing the Dharma. Dharma, the Sanskrit word that means the law, the Tao, the eternal teachings. And in Buddhism, it's so clear, the Four Noble Truths, the first noble truth of the Buddha. There is pain in life. There is suffering. Anybody not have that? You're excused. You can have your $10 back from the parking lot. It's just the fact. It is inevitable that life is difficult for us as humans. That's the first truth of the Buddha that allowed him to rest there at peace with the world. And then the second is how we react to this pain is what creates the way our life will be. The cause of pain in us and in the world around is greed, attachment, fear, delusion, prejudice, hatred. These forces in the human heart and mind that creates our sorrow, our suffering, our pain. There's an end to pain, an end to suffering, a release of freedom, that is possible for every single person. And there's a path to that, the middle path, the path of neither grasping at everything nor of running away, but finding a way to awaken the heart and mind to rest wisely in the midst of all things. I heard these teachings. I got so excited, I jumped up and down. I remember I was 21 years old. I started writing letters to every friend that I knew, uh, trying to explain the Dharma to them, you know. The Eightfold Path, generosity, um, integrity, right speech, right livelihood. Living a life where our actions match what we value in our heart. Training the mind, training the heart in exercises of compassion, of, of calming, of concentration. Seeing the characteristics of life, that everything is in change and is impermanent, that nothing is graspable, that we don't even possess our own bodies. So since we possess nothing, all that we can do is love what is present, but we can't own it. And somehow hearing this teaching that's been preserved like treasures for us to drink from, for me to hear it, it made so much sense. It it was a, a whole shift in my sense of what was true in life. I heard recently a, a story from a uh, an acquaintance um, who goes to Russia as a businessman these days to work 
um, with the transition and the economy. And he was in central Russia, um, around Lake Baikal, which is the largest freshwater lake in the world, at one of the main cities next to Lake Baikal. And traveling there on business, he met the mayor of that town, and in the conversation, he let out that he himself, this this traveler, American businessman, was interested in Buddhist practice. Then he asked the mayor, because there are a lot of Buddhists in that part of Russia, are you Buddhist? And the mayor said, "Um, I wouldn't say that I'm a Buddhist, although I perhaps do some of those practices, which meant he really was a Buddhist, of course, at heart, right? Um, And further conversation, then the mayor said, come, I have something to show you. And so after taking tea and, and some time together, the mayor took him off to this old church on the outskirts of town, surrounded by a wooden fence. And inside the wooden fence was a big stone fence with a steel gate. It rang the bell and this old babushka, this old Russian lady, her scarf came and unlocked 12 bolts and <laughs> opened this gate. And they went into a courtyard and then there was another wall and another gate and opened that and opened a succession of gates into this chapel that had two doors. And then they opened the doors of these two these two doors of this chapel, of this church, and inside it was filled with Buddhist treasures. It was filled with uh, golden images of various uh, angels and dakinis and bodhisattvas and beautiful painted tankas and silken and gold embroidered things that had been the Buddhist heritage of this area of Russia for a thousand years And under the Stalinist period, the nuns and the people of that church had taken them in and hidden them inside because they knew that they were precious. And the mayor said, and the women who were guarding it, that they had written to the Dalai Lama and that he had come on his last visit to Russia to see these things and that they were almost ready to be taken out and restored into the temple. And that's what it felt to me hearing the Dharma in the beginning, that there was this treasure that I was being allowed to participate in. Then the next thing that made a great change for me was intensive or contemplative retreat practice. Not just ten days or or even three months, although those are wonderful kinds of retreats, but some years of meditation. And at first, it's just slogging. You may have noticed there's sleepiness and restlessness and uh, the monkey mind and all the pain that I carried in my body that I would feel and uh, the kinds of tension that had been carried. And there's a kind of initiation that's just being able to sit with yourself with all the boredom and fear and not move not get up or run away, face all the things that we've run away from. And so I had to do that and did it for some time. And after a while, things began to get calm. And I remember walking in the forest and doing my walking meditation, the first time that I had rapture in meditation. It was in the evening and I put a candle um, on this little wooden platform on two trees and had swept the path of leaves and was walking between these two trees very calmly for two or three hours at night in this tropical forest. And then all of a sudden, 
my body started to feel light, like I was floating a little bit. I said, ooh, this is fun. Right? And then I started to feel very tall, like in Alice in Wonderland or something, when you eat that side of the mushroom. And my head, that's what it was. And I felt like my whole body stretched and my head was going to brush the tops of the trees. And I said, wow, this is very interesting. And of course, I got really attached. I've got to keep this as long as I kept walking. How can I get this to stay? Um, <laughs> And as I continued to practice, um, what began to unfold for me was what was written in the ancient meditation texts. And some of it was familiar from some of those early acid trips and things like that, but it was a lot more systematic. Um, My body started to open and my mind became malleable. I would turn it some direction and it would just stay there. It wouldn't wander. And it became very clear and pure. There was some sense of inwardly having been washed like I was put in the washing machine, double cycle and come out. Things just felt cleansed inside. And then my body turned into a river, sensations, just what seemed so came this whole sense of flow and movement. And all the elements started to show themselves. I'd hear a sound and then there'd be an image and a thought and I'd see the world was constructed just of senses of seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting, and then images or thoughts that would come one after another, like on a molecular level, sensing all the different elements of body and mind that make up our life. And it became like rain, like like being in in a rain shower. It was wonderful. And then as the meditation deepened further, through all kinds of visionary experiences of dying in thousands of ways, as one probably has in warfare and illness and facing my own death. Um, And as I let myself just sit with this and die, my body started to become transparent and filled with light, luminous. And then the whole sense of myself began to disappear, open up into space. Just space was left, this lovely space that seemed to go on in every direction forever. And it stayed as long as I didn't try to possess it. As long as I wasn't there, it was there. It was magnificent. And it felt like coming home. There was this sense of confirmation that somewhere in each of us, we intuitively know who we are. And when we come back to that, when we touch that, it it, it awakens and we say, yes, I've known this all along. It's like Emily Dickinson, she wrote, I never saw a moor, I never saw a sea, yet I know how heather looks and what a wave must be. And even not having seen it exactly, there's something in us that knows. So to awaken is really not something new, but a confirmation of our true nature. (coughs) Alice Walker wrote, One day when I was sitting quiet and feeling like a motherless child, which I was, it came to me, that feeling of being a part of everything, not separate at all, and I knew that if I cut a tree, my arm would bleed, and I laughed and I cried and run all around the house. I just knew what it was. In fact, when it happens, you can't miss it. (laughs) So there's that sense. And for me, it came through meditation. For some, again, it's a near-death experience. For some, it's hitting bottom in your life and the sense of grace that comes when you surrender. Maybe for some, it's when we sit with our parents as they die and in the end realize that 
what matters, nothing else matters in life but love. That's really all that matters. But something where we touch someplace so eternal and deep that the world will never be the same for us. We're reminded of some greater reality. As Rumi said, I lived for hundreds of thousands of years as a mineral and died and was reborn a plant. I lived for hundreds of thousands of years as a plant and died and was reborn an animal. I lived for hundreds of thousands of years as an animal and died and was reborn as a human. What have I ever lost by dying? So that's the sense that can come of something that's greater than this limited life that we have. Now all that's well and good. But then I came back from those kinds of experiences, as I've said, back to psychology and graduate school because I wanted to figure out what happened to me, right? (laughs) And I realized that I needed help, that even though those things were true and touched, that whole other parts of my life were completely unaffected by it. Um, And so I began a process that has been now years of various kinds of psychological and therapeutic work, especially 10 or 11 years of breath work, Reiki and breath work, using breath and body to open. And I needed a partner. There were certain things, layers that I had skipped in meditation. I'd kind of gone up to wherever I could go. Um, layers that I skipped that, I was, that were too painful, too frightening, too much grief, too much loss to do alone. One great guru that uh, I've met said that um, it's only after awakening, after connecting with your true nature, that the snakes really come out. (laughs) Because then you have some basis for working with them. And so I worked with some years in breathing and therapy of rage and loss and grief and fear and attachment. Um, for a year, beside the breath work, I also had some body work. This person who was very healing, and what I had her do for a lot of that year was just to hold her hand. She had very healing energy on different parts of my body. She would just hold her hand there for half an hour or an hour. And sometimes I would weep, or, or things that had been closed for so long would start to open. In the Christian Desert Fathers, there's a story where one young brother goes up to the abbot and says, what should we do if another young brother starts to fall asleep in the midst of meditation? Should we um, pinch them or do something to wake them up? And he said, if your brother is falling asleep, reach over and put his head on your lap and support him for the meditation. That kind of kindness. So for me, that work in therapy and body work was like a joint meditation, having a partner, a witness, to ask questions, to be there with me in things that were deeply difficult, to be a loving mirror. And as Rilke says, perhaps everything terrible is in its deeper being something helpless that wants help from us. And everything terrible in me, and I had a lot of pain, really was asking for some help. And often I needed another presence to do it. 
Ramdas said that sometimes he will do therapy. We had this conversation about it, and I said, "Well, what kind of therapy do you do?" And he said, "Well, I give people one session a year, kind of short term, I guess, or something like that." He said, "But I'll do it for four or five hours, and for the first three hours or four hours, I just ask the person to lie down there in front of me, and I put my hand on their heart, and I look into their eyes." And we're just there for a few hours together before we say anything at all. It's that kind of presence that's incredibly healing. It was for me. And really changed my life. Then I look, well, what else has made a difference? Marriage, family. When I first came back again from all this time in Asia, I went to a men's college in a monastery that was all men and so forth. Um, not by accident, I learned. <laughs> and I had a series of difficult and at times disastrous relationships um, because my own need was so great and my own attachment and fear and insecurity. And finally, I fell in love and realized I, mean, I, I wanted very much to have a, a, a committed relationship and found a very deep love. I think we all long for that as humans um, with a woman who, who I've married, who's my wife. And yet in that deep love there were also many things I didn't want uh, that I found, you know. And part of it was that we're really different. Um, she's an artist and a writer, and very introverted uh, temperament. Being with a husband and a, ch- a child for her is like a crowd. Uh, you know. <laughs> it's true for her particular temperament and her, her way. She really stays very closely connected with herself. She loves deep, intimate contact with one person at a time. You know, and here I am, I'm kind of comfortable with two or three hundred people. It's just about the right number for an <laughs> evening's gathering, right? M- Mr. Extrovert. Now, very different in style and so forth. And after we'd be- been together for a little while, she said, you know, I'm not going to be the minister's wife. I don't know what you want, she said, but I'm not going to smile at social Buddhist social functions and <laughs> stuff like that. So we've had a number of things to work out between us. <laughs> And in the process, the great blessing of having a a child uh, came, which is, to me, one of the most wonderful things in life, to have a child. I was never loved that way. I've just never been loved the way a child looks at you. And I've never loved in that way. Um, And, of course, I've never been as attached or feared for or all those things. It brings all of that so alive. And it's worth every bit of it. Early in our marriage, um, we struggled a lot because it didn't fit what I wanted. And I remember, I've told this story here before, but I'll tell it again. I remember going for a walk one day. I was teaching a day of meditation at Green Gulch, which I used to use before uh, we had Spirit Rock. They were very gracious. And uh, in the middle of the day of teaching people to be uh, present with what is in a way or, and all of those things. I went for a walk with my wife and little tiny baby daughter. And uh, it was just after Jean Bolin had written her book, The Goddesses in Every Woman, 
which describes the kind of universal archetypes of women, of Artemis and Athena and um, the goddesses of, of strength, the warrior goddess, the goddess of wisdom and knowledge, the goddess of beauty and love and so forth. Um, and Liana read it and really liked it and said, why don't you read this book? So I read through it and kind of sharing things. And we were going for a walk and she said, how did you like the book? And I said, oh, I liked it a lot. I, I especially was drawn to Aphrodite, you know, the goddess of beauty and, and um, Artemis and this and that and so forth. Um, there, but there was one goddess there that I didn't relate to so much and that, that was Hestia who doesn't have any big temple. She's the goddess of the hearth and home, kind of um, not one big temple, but in every home. And uh, Liana grabbed the book from me and threw it on the ground and said, I knew it. I knew you didn't love me. She said, <laughs> she said, that's me. <laughs> she said, and I've been feeling this for a long time. You want me to be somebody else, you know, and th- that... And she looked at me. She was very angry and very hurt at the same time. And I looked at her, and I realized she was right. (laughs) That it was true that there was some way in which my illusions of who I wanted her to be or what I hoped to live with had been so kind of inflated and there somewhere in my head that I really didn't see who this person was in front of me. Even though we'd been together for a couple or a few years, actually, and on and off for a couple years before that. Do you know what I mean, this process? That I just didn't see. And I was, um, I was ashamed in some way uh, that of how, uh, really how unconscious I'd been. But the patterns are so strong. And it was a turning point in our marriage because we really, had, I had to look and she had to look at who we really are and what it would mean to love each other to love another person just as they are. Which is, of course, the only kind of love that makes any sense. And that somehow, that process of being married and going through all those difficulties um, has really changed me a lot. I guess the last thing then, the last piece, as you can tell, I'm kind of working my way down in this talk too, is just ordinary life. And I still love mystical visions. I love to sit in meditation and have wonderful openings, love to go in the mountains, love the moments of just walking and being touched by this grace of that which is sacred and divine. To be reminded, to be confirmed that we belong here on this earth, that we are a part of what is beautiful in all of life. But it's so easy to return, as I did, and from the monastery or for some retreat, and have your habits be like old clothes that fit so comfortably, and just go back to your old ways. I did so much, you know, being kind of speedy, which is my temperament. Um, I was teaching the three-month retreat in Barry after I'd been back a few years, and this one man came from Europe who'd listened to my tapes of talks and read books and was really enthusiastic to come and practice. And he came to an interview about three or four weeks into the retreat and said, I'm so disappointed. I said, in what? 
He said, in you. <laughs> he said, your tapes, you have this melodious kind of voice and it makes sense what you say. And then I look at you and you're, you know, you're eating and talking to this other person and running around up the stairs. And I do, I tend to go upstairs two at a time and down the stairs. And he said, I don't get the sense of some sage. It's more like, like an Italian shoe salesman. <laughs> As a monk and as a meditation teacher, initially I was really insulated from the world. And what's taught me enormously is just coming back and facing the ordinariness of worrying about money. Moving out here and having a pregnant wife and looking for a house to rent and not having enough for first, middle and last, you know, payments and trying to figure out how I was going to make that work or what kind of car can we afford that will be reliable and that we can still afford. Um, or who's going to cook and who's going to do the dishes and who's going to do the 2 a.m. feedings when, a, when our daughter was little. Over and over, just really facing what it is to be human. And I had this conversation last year with Pir Vilayat Khan, the 70-year-old, beautiful Sufi master and teacher, about the great teachers that we had met, and particularly that he'd studied with in India, and how difficult it is to live a spiritual life here in an ordinary way in America. And he said, ah, oh, they'd all have a hard time too. And I said, no. I said, you know, do you, you look at all these people, you've met these masters, and you don't really mean that, do you? He said, I do. He said, if I took any one of them and moved them to California and got them a wife, three children, an insurance policy, two cars, you know, a job with occasional overtime. And he said, I don't know a single master I've met that wouldn't have a hard time. And there was something very reassuring in that, you know. And so it's whose turn to cook and whose turn to do the dishes. And over and over being with the birth of children of people that you love and being with the death of friends and relatives and taking out the garbage and seeing if you can save a little money for your children's college and being with your parents who are aging or sick or dying. And that that too is so much spiritual life. And in the midst of it, being aware of Yugoslavia or Tibet or the rainforests or all of those sorrows of the world and somehow learning to live spiritual life in the midst of them. To take a little time each day to be quiet, to walk, to sit for me. Or just to remember to breathe when things get difficult. Just to breathe, feel my own breathing. Or learn how to let go of my expectations and all these different things about money, cars, people around me. Just practicing day by day, letting go. Or maybe just practicing living day by day, being more in the moment, not worrying so much, living one day at a time. So much to learn from that. Or dealing with my own anger and irritation and being willing to listen when I get angry to sense the fear and the pain and the loss that's just under that anger and to feel that place and speak from that place instead.
or to work with loving-kindness meditation when I'm driving and when there's a lot of traffic going over the bay, you know, going over the Golden Gate Bridge and you're waiting, you know, and you're, you're just past the Sausalito exit at the bottom of the hill and, and, the, and, and there's two hours ahead of you to get in the city. Or just paying attention to life so as not to miss its lessons. Because they're amazing lessons, hard lessons. But they're all lessons of compassion, or love, or wisdom, or patience, or justice, if we understand them. Or picking a few problems in the so many that there are in the world, and trying to plant some seeds for those few problems. And in all of this, in an ordinary way, gradually seeing that wakefulness, awareness, and loving-kindness are the same thing. That there really isn't any difference. To be awake is to bring a loving presence. And one of the greatest gifts for me in all of this is the spiritual community and teaching. Every time I give a talk or retreat or whatever, I have somehow to dig into myself and look for what's true or authentic uh, or real. It makes me have to be honest. So it's an incredible gift to be put on the spot like this, because it is. I mean, and I get nervous sometimes. Do I have anything to say this week? And sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. I mean, well, I always have words, That's but something really to say uh, is a great gift to be put on the spot. And we all know it somehow. I, I think that we all long for that authenticity where we don't pull back from the world and where we don't get lost or attached but where we rest in our true nature, bring our heart to discover this greatness of heart and the middle path, the awakening in the midst of it all. One of the most beautiful things about the teacher meeting was that a great flavor that came from almost all of these teachers was their own learning of their own humanness. That for all of them there was some parallel, perhaps, to my own journey of seeing spirituality as, you know, the puff of smoke thing out there. You'll go disappear into some heaven realm. And discovering that it's now, and it's just where we are, and there's a, an intimacy and a presence that is true about mindfulness or wakefulness. It's either now or never. And just hearing that from so many people... And yet, in the midst of this, still remembering to ask the question, who is doing this dance? Who am I? Who are we? To listen to that eternal truth that's underneath all the limited fears and stories and sense of who we are, that's timeless and ever-present. And so I end again with a poem from... Didi Lala. Four questions. Who is awake and who is asleep? What is this lake that is continually oozing back into the earth? What can a human being offer to God? And what do we most deeply want? Didi Lala answers The mind is what sleeps what recognizes itself 
as God is awake. This always disappearing lake is made of our appetites, haven't you noticed? These moving about, this talking and listening. The only offering you can make to God is your increasing attention. And the last desire is to be divine in human form. So let's just sit for a minute. 